Welcome to Holy Human, where we bring disability and neurodiversity to the pulpit. I'm Serena. And I'm Katie. And today we'll be talking about Joseph Smith History, chapter 1, verses 1 through 26. So, ah, I'm like really excited about today. Okay, tell me about it. So, Joseph Smith History pulls from the History of the Church volumes. It summarizes Joseph's experience. I mean, he's kind of almost a child. <laughs> I mean, it talks about like where he was born and everything and about his family. Yeah. And then uh, he's 14 when he has his experience, right? He calls himself a child like multiple times. <laughs> yeah. It's, and he really is. He's 14. He's so young. Yeah. So it talks about how there was a lot of activity surrounding religion and his family even were split between a couple different religions. And he said initially, it was like all in good spirit. Like all the different religions were like, oh, yay, everyone's trying to seek God. And this is wonderful. And then he said there was a little bit of a change where people started getting a little bit competitive and saying, this is the right church. You have to join this church. If you go away from this church, then you're doing the wrong thing. Not just preachers and pastors, but the converts, too, were getting aggressive to one another. What stood out to me there is how um, he was saying that they were using the Bible against each other, and mm. so you couldn't really tell, like, what the different verses meant because they would all use it to support their own doctrine yeah, and their own interpretations. Right, yeah. Weaponizing it. Mm-hmm. Right, so I wrote in the side of my scriptures, Bible bashing equals loss of spirit because... Like, he didn't even have any spiritual direction with them anymore because they were so bashing toward each other, right? So, Joseph read in James 1.5, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that giveth to men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. And then he prayed to know which church he should join. He saw a vision of Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ. They appeared to him and told him that none of the churches were true. He had multiple visitations from angels after that to give him more information about how to establish the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and restore God's church on the earth once again. Just in case anybody is listening who is is a little bit more aware of the kind of controversy around Joseph Smith's first vision than, than a lot of people in the church are, there are multiple accounts of the first vision. Like this is something, if you want to research it yourself, um, there are gospel topics ex- essays about it. Faithful Feminist has a great episode this week about sitting with it and trying to come to terms with the fact that there are multiple accounts of the first vision. And then also they have a great whole thing about capital T truth and lower T truth. So I encourage anyone listening to Ooh. explore that. Yeah, it's amazing, but I'm, I'm not. I'm not gonna go into it because that's not that it's their thing. Not that we can't use it, but like they explain it so much better than I can explain it off the fly. And um, but I just don't want anyone who is aware of that to think that we're ignoring it because it is a thing. So <laughs> right, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. In Come Follow Me, it actually says, "Why are there multiple accounts of the first vision?" Oh, good. It talks about that a little bit. Yeah, the church has published like a couple different accounts of the first vision and kind of explained it a little bit of why that happened. So the biggest thing that stood out to me in a disability kind of lens Mm -hmm. is before Joseph had the vision of Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ, he was surrounded by darkness. And it says, there was such an, an astonishing influence over me as to bind my tongue so that I could not speak. Thick darkness Mm. gathered around me, and it seemed to me for a time as if I were doomed to sudden destruction. So before Joseph saw Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ, there was a dark influence around him. People say that Satan tried to stop the restoration from happening. In the moment that he felt he was going to succumb to the darkness, there was a pillar of light that appeared. He felt the darkness go away. He felt peace, and then he saw Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ. It's a interesting sequence of events there. Okay. When he started praying, one of the first things that he felt that was wrong was that he lost his speech. He said it was immediate mm. that he was seized upon some power, and it 
bound his tongue. In this podcast, we're going to talk a lot about myths and stereotypes that surround disability that are extremely harmful to disability. And this feeds into one of those stereotypes. Not that Joseph was, in a way, he was disabled in this moment, right? Yeah. I know he had osteomyelitis when he was young. He had a fever when he was a kid and there was an infection in his bone. And normally they only do amputation on people who had osteomyelitis at the time because there wasn't really treatment. But Joseph's parents called in a doctor and they were able to do a life-saving surgery on the boy Joseph. But um, he was able to fully recover from that condition and didn't have a physical disability as an adult. According to Google, it's a common thing. Over 200,000 cases per year of people that lose their ability to speak. Stroke, dementia, ALS, MS, even PTSD, autism. People that have experienced trauma can lose speech, head injury. You know, there's a lot of things that can bring on speech loss. Yeah. And uh, something I learned was there's aphasia, which is problem understanding or using speech and then there's apraxia that's a hard time making movement to speak meaning like the muscles in your body aren't allowing you to move your mouth to speak so there's two kinds of different ways that you can experience speech loss so we have a friend we'll call her holly she is an autistic woman and she wanted us to share with you a little bit about her experience with speech loss she says and i'm just going to read this As a woman on the autism spectrum disorder, I experience speech loss. It doesn't happen every day. Instead, it comes as a result of being under severe stress, adjusting to unexpected schedule changes, and or being overstimulated. While there's a ton I could say about all three of these triggers, I want to focus on what happens, what it feels like for my spirit when I can't speak. Since I'm able to speak most of the time and I only lose the ability some of the time, I'm able to contrast the experiences. Losing my speech is like losing one of my hands. If you're dicing tomatoes, you'll quickly learn how much easier it is to have both your hands. When I lose my speech, I lose a vital part of communication. It's harder to ask for help, to participate in a conversation, to express myself. It's a very humbling experience to not be able to do any of those things as easily. I also feel very jealous of those around me who can speak freely and easily. It's almost like a switch in my brain when I lose my speech. It's like turning out the lights. I can tell when the light goes off, but I can't turn it back on without allowing my brain to rest. I pray and plead with the Lord to help me recover quickly so I can return to normal life again. One of the most sacred parts of losing my speech is the closeness I feel to my Heavenly Father. He is the only one whom I can 100% communicate with because I don't lose the ability to pray. The last time I lost my speech was in September 2020. This bout lasted for several days because severe, ongoing stress caused it. It was so debilitating that I couldn't work my day job very well. My brain hurt so badly that it was hard to think straight and I was sleeping a ton to recover as quickly as possible. I do my best to have scripture study every day, but I felt like I was falling short, really short, and that upset me. That night, as I lay in bed pleading for relief and trying to articulate how I felt through sobs because I was too mentally exhausted to even think, I had a sacred experience. I started having scripture verses flood into my mind. Sorry, this is Serena. I'm getting emotional reading this. Um, Verses that were completely relevant to how I felt. Elder Holland testifying that God the Father and Jesus Christ were extremely close, even when Christ couldn't feel his Father's comfort with him. Elder Holland knew that God and Christ were incredibly close in those final moments of the atonement that took place on the cross. My tears began to change to tears of gratitude that my Father in Heaven recognized my intentions and was blessing me with the knowledge that my efforts were good enough and that we were staying close. Losing my speech is never fun, but I honestly wouldn't trade for anything the sacred moments I've had during the times when my disability takes over my brain. I believe that our trials refine us and that those moments of great pain and discomfort help me reach for heaven in ways that I don't experience on a daily basis. Because it's intermittent, I have very similar feelings 
about walking as she does speaking. And I also wouldn't trade my cataplexy for anything. You know, my husband has said similar things about his disability. And I, I don't know. I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm back and forth on my feelings on if I would give away my disability if I could or not. But I love hearing stories like that, the perspectives of people who have been molded in the refiner's fire. Ah, ah, this is (laughs) an emotional episode. (laughs) Okay. I know your experience was different than the experience shared by our friend Holly, but you've experienced a form of an inability to speak due to your disability before? Yeah. So in narcolepsy, one of the symptoms of narcolepsy is sleep paralysis. And I've had moments back when I was fake married, <clears throat> which we're not going to get into Serena's personal history. <laughs> I got an annulment. That's all I'm going to say. Anyways, I'd be lying on the bed asleep, but not quite asleep. I don't know how to explain it. There's just, just like the in-between sleeping and wakefulness. And um, this happened most of the time when I was taking naps and if I and, and if when I was regularly on medication, which is, I mean, one of the reasons why I don't like taking medication. This is my personal preference. Not Medication does great things for lots of people with narcolepsy, but... Um, and also why I don't like taking naps in the afternoon, because I would experience sleep paralysis. And a lot of people with narcolepsy report seeing different things when they're experiencing sleep paralysis, uh, almost visions, which we're going to talk about later. I think the scariest part for me about sleep paralysis is I think I'm aware of what's going ar- around, going on in the room. I'm aware that my partner at the time is, is in the bed next to me. And I'm, like, yelling in my head for him to, like, wake me up, but he can't hear me because I can't, like, physically move my mouth. And it, that's, yeah. <laughs> wow. Oh, it's, that's so scary. It, 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 yeah. It, it's frustrating. It's just kind of like, like, I can kind of hear things, and sometimes I think I've said things, but it turns out that I only said it in my mind, and then I get frustrated, and then I get scared that I'm never going to wake up, even though I'm already kind of aware but I I feel like if I can make any noise at all then maybe maybe he'll nudge me and then I'll the sleep paralysis will like I'll snap out of it you know and wow yeah sometimes you can get out like a little like whimper but it's like screaming in your mind but your body just won't move you know so that's my experience with loss of speech how long does that last for you when I mean I don't know because you can't really I mean if you're asleep you don't really measure the time. Like what seems like a few minutes in a dream can take up the whole night, you know, or vice versa. And then, and then sometimes when I finally wake up all the way, it turns out that like what I thought was going on in the room was actually just hallucinations, you know, like, Oh, I thought he went out of the room to cook dinner or I thought he sat down next to me and said such and such thing to me. And then I ask, okay, wait, did this happen? No. Were you dreaming? So. (laughs) Oh, wow. That's so interesting. I don't know. I honestly think part of it is the medication, which makes it worse. Well, I was on modafinil anyway, in case anybody was wondering, uh, which is what they give pilots for, um, to stay awake on transatlantic flights. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, that's, that's a pretty good transition into the question of how do people know if they're having visions or if it's hallucinations and how <gasps> like people respond to people who describe experiences like that? Like yeah. how do, yeah, if I hear a story of someone having a vision, do I immediately think hallucination? Or do I think vision and why? Yes, I'm so excited about this. Go I have a lot of feelings it. about this. Um, yes, get into it, girl. <laughs> okay, so, I, and I thought I wasn't going to have much to talk about today, liar. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Let's just assume you'll always have things to talk about in this podcast. <laughs> Serena always has something to say, y'all. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, let's talk about visions and how people react to when people share that they have a vision. So in Joseph Smith history, because this relates so directly, 
Joseph talks about the very first experience he had when he told a minister about what had happened to him. In verse 21, he says, I was greatly surprised at his behavior. He treated my communication only lightly, but with great contempt, saying, I was all of the devil, that there are no such things as visions or revelations in these days, that all such things had ceased with the apostles and that there would never be any more of them. Let's call that what it is. That is gaslighting. If someone says, hey, I had this spiritual experience, or even I had this physical experience or I have this emotional experience this mental experience and you say uh are you crazy are you of the devil like that is so harmful so harmful do not do that like yeah because then you're making them think oh my goodness am I crazy you start wondering that and I don't just because someone has a mental health issue or a mental illness that causes them to see things does not mean that they're not capable human beings that are capable of thinking rationally and not only that but deserve to be treated equally and deserve to be understood and validated i personally like i still would love to have a conversation with someone who has schizophrenia on this podcast and ask them what has been your experience in the church while being someone who experiences visions, you know, have, how have you been treated a, and then B, how do you like, how do you tie that in with your faith? You know, are they at odds or do you feel like they work together really well? I personally, I don't have an answer to that. I don't have schizophrenia. I have narcolepsy and cataplexy and some other mental health stuff, borderline, probably a borderline personality disorder. Yeah. So I don't have an answer for that, but I, I think that conversation is something that I would love to have. I will say, and I'm not going to share their names to respect their privacy, but I do know people personally who have shared with me some visions that they've had. Like the, the knee jerk reaction, I think, especially growing up in a community that is ableist and a community that kind of devalues mental health and a community that associates anything out of the ordinary with the devil, um, the knee-jerk reaction is, this is from Satan, or maybe you do have a mental illness, you know, maybe maybe you do have schizophrenia. The knee-jerk reaction is to not believe. But I, I, I think that runs contrary to what we actually believe in the church, you know? That's the greatest irony ever, that um, this church was started with a vision of Mm -hmm. God and that in the church there's people that if someone said I had a vision there's people if you're not the prophet or maybe I maybe I can go so far as to say if you're not a priesthood holder there's people that would say oh that that didn't happen she's crazy which even that the that ableist wording of like am I crazy or she's crazy like why why does that why is that such a negative connotation? Like, why is that the boom, she's crazy, shut it down, I don't take you seriously? The word crazy, it just further stigmatizes the mm-hmm. idea that people with mental health issues shouldn't be taken seriously. People with mental illnesses shouldn't be taken seriously. And it's hard, like, it's part of our speech pattern. There's so many, we'll, we'll have a different discussion about this another time. Ableism is in speech so much that it is something, even I still say it sometimes, I sometimes still say like, oh, that's crazy without even thinking, even though I'm trying to become more aware of ableism, internalized ableism Mm -hmm. that I have, ableism in language that I use. Yeah, I agree with that 100%. Article of Faith number seven, it says, we believe in the gift of tongues, prophecy, revelation, visions, healing, interpretation of tongues, and so forth. Okay, this is literally a bunch of stuff that Joseph wrote about Mormon beliefs, about the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints beliefs, right? So to say to someone, oh, you you did not experience a vision. I don't believe you experienced a vision. Yeah. That kind of flies in the face of that. And you're basically doing to that person what these ministers did to Joseph. Why Why would they do that? Okay, let's examine that a little bit. They do that because they're threatened by it. I think that's the simple truth. That's that's what I think. They have gotten comfortable in the things they believe and in the things that support those beliefs. And when someone brings them evidence that is to the contrary or that pokes holes or unravels or turns their beliefs upside down, then 
That is unsettling. And and actually, I'm not going to say, I mean, I could I could say that it's a symptom of the patriarchy, which I mean, it is. But uh but I also think <laughs> This is why I love you. Like our brains work the same. I just don't know how to vocalize it sometimes. So yes, keep going. <laughs> like is it a symptom of the patriarchy? Yes. But I also think it's a very human thing to to not constantly want to question things. Like, I will say that as someone who experiences revolving faith crises <laughs> on a daily basis, like, it's not comfortable to constantly question things and to constantly, like, evaluate your motives and um, your morality and your ethics and to basically have existential crises all the time. Like, it's not a comfortable thing. Um, right. And we treat it as if it's like the second that happens to someone, if they have any questions about their faith, it's like they're an outcast in the church. Right. Yeah. And in reality, that should be like, awesome. You're like yep. thinking about these things. You're trying to apply them to yourself. That's that's a process of trying to grow your testimony in questioning things. I think that there's people like Ryan, my husband, I think he's born with the gift of faith. He doesn't really have to question things he just hears Mm -hmm. something and his spirit immediately recognizes like if it's of God or not he's really good at that honestly I am the kind of person that I have to question things if I'm going to try to seriously apply it to my testimony if I don't then it doesn't register with my brain and it doesn't become a part of me yeah um yeah you bring up a good point like maybe one of the reasons why people shut down these conversations about visions and revelations that don't jive with them is because they're afraid of having a faith crisis and because we treat having a faith crisis so poorly in the church and like you said it's extremely ironic Mm -hmm. when I say it's extremely ironic like I don't want people to think I don't know how to I don't know how to put this strongly enough like this really is one of the hugest ironies in the church and we underplay it a lot You know, I want people to put themselves in Joseph's shoes and to have a question and go to their bishop and say, hey, I had this experience and this is what I learned from it. And I've never heard any heard of anything like this before in the scriptures or in the in the general conference talks. What do you think it means? And the bishop being like, what the heck? No, get out of here like this. this, You need to see. Let's set you up with uh, with LDS Family Services to get you an appointment ASAP. You know, yeah, or lose your calling over something like that. It is a really big irony. It's strange that there's some kind of invisible line of like these questions are okay and these ones aren't. And Mm -hmm. I think ultimately, I think all questions are great. You have to ask questions. (laughs) I was gonna say, if any of you lack lack wisdom, let him ask of God. Like, there's no restraint on that. There's no like God doesn't say like. But if it has to do with this, don't ask, you know? (laughs) Like, literally, the way the church got started is through questions. And, yeah, I I really, really hope that that is a um, church culture shift that catches on, that we become more comfortable with questions. Even in public Sunday school settings, I feel like if you ask questions, like, a lot of times, if people do it, it people feel like they have to do it privately or just with their, you know, spouse or just with their priest or leader or just with their bishop. Why can't we have discussions about really good questions in Sunday school? Why, why is that scary? You know, like it's an opportunity for a ton of people to start asking even more questions. I love that. And I can't tell you how many times I've encountered this really huge, awkward silence after I asked a question in Sunday school. (laughs) Or seminary. I was or... going to say, I went to seminary with you. I remember some of those moments. And I was still in a part of my testimony where I was like, oh, did she just say that? You know, like, <laughs> and I and I feel so bad that I was in that place once, but I'm glad that I'm out of that place. And now anytime people ask any kind of questions, I'm like, yeah, dig into it. Yes. You know, because that's yeah. how you get your own testimony. I think what would make it easier for all of us in changing this church culture is like you said, yes, ask those questions, speak up, but also acknowledge how hard it is to ask those questions. And so if someone speaks up in Sunday school or Relief Society or 
priesthood. If someone asks a question and it's deflected or it isn't answered well, or the teacher is too afraid to say, uh, we don't have an answer for that, raise your hand and say, you know what, like, I think this is a really good question. Thank you for asking this sister or brother so-and-so. Like, at the very least, I hope we can continue to search for this answer together. Something I as simple that. as that. And if you're too afraid, I, I need to be careful because I get mad at people when they're afraid because I just have no filter and <laughs> and I just need to be, I need to be more patient with people and recognize that fear is not a bad thing. What I was going to say is if you don't feel comfortable Supporting someone in class, although that would be the best thing to do, is to kind of create that atmosphere, is to go to them privately after the class. Say, hey, like, I know I know what you shared was kind of a scary thing to share, and I know you didn't really get an answer for that, but, like, I support your quest to find an answer to this question. And if you gain any insight on this, I'd love to hear it, and if I think of anything, I'll let you know. I love that. I was going to say, do not let people leave that moment feeling isolated, even yes. if you don't have the answer to that question. We need to make it a bigger thing in supporting people when they mm -hmm. have questions. And I'm glad that we're talking about public versus private in this case, because I feel like I'm pretty strong at asking questions privately, but mm -hmm. I do feel like it's a really big thing. You feel like, oh, I shouldn't talk about that in Sunday school or in Relief yeah. Society or whatever. But we should. We should ask questions and we should all take every opportunity we can when we're together to grow together. Yeah. The other thing I wanted to point out is something that we talked about before uh, or in the last episode a little bit is about faith crisis being an example of neurodiversity. And I think that um, this is just further evidence that having a different spiritual understanding is a form of neurodiversity and that neurodiverse people, whether that's someone with a mental illness, whether that's someone with narcolepsy, whether that's someone with schizophrenia, whether that's someone with autism, perhaps, like, we, and I say this is such a broad we, okay, we experience things differently, <laughs> like, and that doesn't mean that our faith is any less valid, it doesn't mean that our experiences are any less valid, and I am so done with the bishops who make us hate ourselves for having that experience and for like I man I had um I <laughs> I don't know if I should share this or not but I had um post production we're adding this message in trigger warning the next story mentions suicidal ideation please skip to the 30 minute and 13 second mark 30 minutes 1 3 seconds in this episode to skip this story if needed. I had traumatic experience in 2018 uh, when I was getting out of my fake marriage. As a result of that, I did something that I kind of reacted and I quote-unquote sinned, but I felt so much better afterwards. Like, I felt like it had healed a part of me. And from that, I just, I felt like, you know what, like, I don't think what I did was a sin, you know, and that kind of like challenged my preconceived notion of what sin was. And I went to my bishop about it. And I was like, hey, I did this. I don't feel guilty about it, though. And I don't feel guilty about it because I think that it was, it's part of my healing experience. And I actually don't think this is, I don't think it's a sin in all cases. And that bishop tore into me and told me I didn't deserve to be at BYU-Idaho. I didn't deserve the tithe payers' money. Uh, a whole example of someone in South America sending their tithing and me taking advantage of it with my sinful ways. You know, like, how can you take advantage of that poor widow? Like, you don't deserve to be here. And he tore into me. And I was at a very precarious place mentally because I just received my annulment and very emotionally wrought didn't have a diagnosis yet in terms of like borderline personality disorder or anything. And I went home and I like trigger warning, I had pretty heavy suicidal ideations. Like I laid on the floor in my room, curled up into a ball because I knew if I moved, I would go into the kitchen and find a knife, you know? And I just, I lay there just curled into myself, hating myself, feeling like I was worthless because of what that bishop said, because he questioned 
my experience and I believed him after after he said that you know like I don't want anyone else to feel that way so I guess my point in telling that little anecdote is just like how dangerous it can be when you gaslight someone and say that their experience is not true and you you equate their experience to being sinful and then yeah I do want to talk, I don't know how well this segues, but I do want to talk a little bit about differentiating between, like, what is a real vision and what is not. You know what I mean? Really quick, I am so sorry that you had that experience. I think when you have good bishops, it can change your life. And when you have bad bishops or bishops that don't understand you, it can also change your life. And when people have those experiences though oh my gosh like what a letdown of such a crucial moment like what a letdown of what you're supposed to use the priesthood for you know we we have literal scriptures that say like act first in love Mm -hmm. like where was that in that moment and that is such a crucial moment for you in your life with what you were going through you were let down and that's not okay. I'm so sorry. I appreciate that. I just, I mean, it doesn't bother me anymore. I just think that he was full of shit. And, (laughs) and I think that, I don't know, I've just, my view on sin has drastically changed as a result of that, because I am not going, I'm not going to accept someone else's measurement of my worthiness if it runs contrary to my personal revelation. You may have quote-unquote stewardship over me as a bishop, but you don't have stewardship over, like, my salvation. That's mine, you know? And you don't have stewardship over my feelings, which is something that's incredibly hard um, as someone with borderline personality disorder to say that someone doesn't have power over our feelings because we feel like our feelings are constantly fluctuating. People have power over them all the time. It's like having... uh, third-degree burns emotionally, thin, sensitive, emotional skins. So I'm not saying that that pain doesn't exist, but I'm saying that I'm trying to not tie those feelings that sometimes happen with my belief of worthiness. Anyway, it's a process. I'm glad you broke down stewardship because I feel like the bishop has stewardship Mm -hmm. is kind of what we say, but we don't say over what. And you're right. He doesn't have stewardship over every single thing that you do and that you are. Um, Thank you for pointing that out. Yeah, of course. So what we're talking about, about differentiating, I do want to say, I will acknowledge, and I want this to go on the record, (laughs) that people do abuse this. There will be people who abuse this. There will be people who say, I received a vision that you and I are going to be married and you don't have anything to do with that. Like Elder Holland gave a talk (laughs) at at BYU years ago and said, if I had a dime for every man who said that to to a woman on this campus, (laughs) you know, that I received a revelation, you know, that we should be together. So there are people who will weaponize this. And, and and I will acknowledge that there are people back in the early days of the church who weaponized it, and especially in regards to to marrying underage girls. Like, I'm just going to say that. we I'm not going to go into the specifics of it. Uh, that's a journey that I feel like I have to take very carefully, emotionally, to, to really understand and, and grapple with. But it did happen, and so it, it can be dangerous. My issue with it, I guess the way I see it is kind of the way I see the service dog and ESA issue. So like recently, they, uh, the airlines, the Department of Transportation gave into the lobbying of these huge conglomeration of airlines that wanted to ban ESAs, emotional support animals, for riding for free on airlines. They want to start charging for them. And because it's airlines, it's not covered in the, under the Americans with Disabilities Act, it's covered under uh, some Air Carrier Act. It's separate, which is frustrating to me. And the problem with that is that they make their argument that too many people are bringing dangerous animals on board. Someone said something about a python, a peacock, a pot-bellied pig, etc. And that they're unsanitary, that they're dangerous, that they're disturbing other passengers, etc. And that's why they're saying you have to pay a fee. Which, if you look at it, they're expected to make like an extra $25 million off of this one policy. 
Oh my god. Uh, and if you think about how the airline industry is doing in the time of corona, like yeah, there's some suspect motives there. And the lady who brought the peacock on board, she did admit later that she was just trying to get it to, like, this this fair for free. That's frustrating as someone who has had an emotional service animal and as someone who is currently training their service dog. All I have to protect him is my ESA letter that I received a long time ago. The problem is that if you call into question one animal, you call into question all of them. And yeah. it makes it harder for people who have disadvantages financially, medically, especially in this healthcare environment where I had no doctor, even though I was triple covered by insurance. Like, explain that to me. There are massive gaps in the healthcare system. And so if someone doesn't have insurance, they can't go to the doctor. They can't get a letter for their ESA. Anyway, I'm rambling now, but <laughs> let me reconnect it back. You're basically throwing the baby out with the bathwater, to use that lovely expression, right? And you're making it harder on people who really do need it, you know, whose experiences are very real. And so I think it's, it's the same thing as people with visions. Yes, people will, there are people who will take advantage of it, who will use it for their own purposes. There are people who will lie about it. But there are also people who are, who are experiencing very real things. And if you say no, if you draw a hard line and say no, anything that is not a, B, C, D is not a real vision, then you run the risk of putting that wall and trapping the people with real experiences in the same wall, in the same grouping as the people who are making stuff up. Do I have an answer for that? Do I have a solution? Uh, not necessarily. I think I personally, at this moment, would err on the side of radical inclusivity and radical acceptance, because then at least we're validating the ones that need to be validated rather than gaslighting everybody. I think we just need better standards of measurement, like with ESAs yeah. and service animals, like we need better standards of measurement. And those are hard to come by because like I said, because of these systemic issues, when we look at, look at people who have quote unquote visions, and if it's something that, it, that constricts the mind and constricts the heart, I think that's where the danger lies. But if it's expanding the mind, expanding the heart, offering new ways to be Christ-like and more inclusive gospel, then I think we should welcome it. Yeah. I think it says a lot about the culture that if you ask a person, would you ever take advantage of a disabled person? Then, of course, they'd be like, oh, no. But people all the time take advantage of disability law. Yeah. Emotional support animals is a great example. Like, they're like, oh, it doesn't matter if I do this one thing. Well, hello. Like, look what it's done. Yep. People can't go anywhere with an emotional support animal anymore. And they're so valid. Like, they are so needed yeah. by people. They are, like, life-saving to people. And now there's such a stigma against them that people don't take them seriously ever. Yep. It's horrifying. Yep. Abled folks will always try to brew disabled folks, at least if you're ableist. Even within the service dog community, I've already seen people question other other service handlers and be like, oh, does that person really have a disability? Does that person really need that emotional support animal? And I'm like, no, you don't get to ask that. Especially with someone who has your own, if you have your own disability and own emotional need for for an animal that is contributing to the problem you are not any better than these ableist folks you know right think about what that does to the yeah. person like to literally you need an animal to help you function in public mm -hmm. or in general to be questioned at every turn for that that must be so stressful yep. and possibly make symptoms that they need the dog for or animal for worse yep yep if anybody listening to this sees a service dog, yes, they could be faking it, but they probably aren't. And even if they probably are, if you say something, then it makes it harder for all of us who have real things that we need them for. So just, just smile at them or don't even smile. Stick your tongue out and walk away. Your mask will cover your tongue. No one will know you stuck your tongue out at them. <laughs> like, like just, just don't interact with them if you have, if you're not sure. Like there's a lot of invisible disabilities there's a lot of reasons why people need assistance animals, and I'm going to say that because that includes emotional support animals and service dogs. Um, 
you can't tell I have narcolepsy. You can't tell I have cataplexy. You can't tell I have borderline personality disorder. My stepmom has a gluten intolerance. Um, she had a stroke, so she she needs help balancing. Like, there's a ton of reasons why someone may not, quote-unquote, look disabled, but will still need an animal. Anyway, I'm passionate about that. One thing I did want to talk about, the Come Follow Me lesson, there's this quote that I found interesting. It says, Joseph's testimony of that miraculous experience boldly declares that anyone who lacks wisdom might ask of God and obtain. The Come Follow Me lesson goes into more generalities, not just asking questions about religion, but it says anytime you make a decision, you should ask of God. Mm. And I think that disabled people can still be in touch with the spirit and guided by the Lord. That is the right of everyone that lives on earth. There are a ton of accounts of the priesthood being used to heal, but there are some people that will live on earth without being healed Mm -hmm. and their bodies are meant to be disabled on earth. And I have experiences with that um, that we'll talk about in a different podcast. I'm, I'm excited to share it, but not here. But I think the sad thing about this wording is that there's some people that struggle with gaining knowledge because mm. of their disabilities, right? Gaining wisdom. And does that mean that God doesn't speak to them? If anyone mm. who lacks wisdom can ask of God and gain it, then they must not have a connection with God. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, and some people will say this is so nitpicky, but this is literally existing with a disability. There's so many things that you're discluded from and people don't even think about it. Yeah. Again, everyone on earth has the ability from God to connect with his spirit and be guided. Some people have different trials in their journey to connect with God. So that's different. But the idea that you can just ask God for wisdom and receive, that doesn't really work for everyone on every Mm. level. Um, A lot having to do with disabilities. So how would you amend that? Or would you just take it out? I mean, I would say anyone who desires godliness or desires a connection to God might ask to obtain something like that. Okay. Um, Any person who seeks God can find them if they are devoted to it and really, really seeking. I think that uh, it has to be personal and it has to be a personal journey for everyone. Jesus is literally the savior for everyone. So that doesn't exclude anyone based on ability even. Another thing that is interesting, Joseph himself taught, quote, all the minds and spirits that God ever sent into the world are susceptible of enlargement. This is quoted in a couple different places on the church website and in church publications. But one interesting place that this is quoted in is disability.churchofjesuschrist.org. So on the disability page for the church, they quote Hmm. this quote. Let me read it one more time. All the minds and spirits that God ever sent into the world are susceptible of enlargement. That's where I'm drawing from this connection of literally anyone that comes to earth can feel the spirit, can feel God how God changes them and how God can work in their lives can possibly be limited as long as they have that disability. Can God heal disabilities? I would say yes. Will God always heal disabilities? I would say no. Some people will live on earth with disabilities always, part of the earth experience, right? I find that that is an interesting quote to bring back to the idea that we talked about how there's a stigma of any person with mental health illness lives in darkness. There's like yes. a darkness around them. Before we end this podcast, I want to talk about that a little more. I then I wanted to talk about this too. Yes. <laughs> okay, good. Yeah. So this quote like kind of punches that idea in the face. <laughs> um, people with mental health problems do not equal darkness. And that stigma is so incredibly harmful. There's like this stigma that disability is evil, disability, it's better to be dead than disabled, and it's seen in a lot of different ways. I hope people don't roll their eyes when I'm saying that because I have a lot of examples of where Mm. we can see that, especially in media. I hope and pray to the heavens that this isn't a thing in church culture as much as I assume it is. (laughs) Hopefully people in the church can see that every person is valid and every person is saved by Christ and is here for a reason. But there's the quote to put it in place. 
all spirits on earth have the opportunity to grow through the light of God and that disability is not not included in that okay what do you have to say about darkness I I think this is something that people with certain mental illnesses really feel um there are moments when you do feel dark and it can be really confusing if you've always understood it to be that darkness is is evil and then you start wondering am i am i being possessed right now you know am i possessed and when you find a diagnosis when you find a therapist when you find a community of people who also um, are experiencing the same things that you, you realize, wow, maybe, maybe I'm not possessed. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm just experiencing a mental health crisis. Or in my case, maybe this is a trauma response. Some psychologists believe that borderline personality disorder is, is kind of like PTSD, is a trauma response to, to certain things in childhood, which would make sense in my case. But yeah, there are moments where you feel dark and I'll just say there is. There is a huge feeling of rejection that you feel when people acknowledge that because they do. Like I <laughs> had a moment literally two days ago where someone got mad at me for the quote unquote vibes I was bringing. Like for the bad vibe. Oh my God. Like, bro, I was just advocating for myself and my service dog in that moment. That actually wasn't an instance of me uh, splitting, which is what they call when people with borderline personality disorder like have these black and white moments. Um, so that wasn't me splitting. That was just me advocating for myself. Yeah, but I know that they said that because they don't, because they don't value neurodiversity because they don't value because everybody has this idea that that we have to ha be happy all the time. This toxic positivity idea. And that anyone who brings that down, we don't want them here. Like, regardless of whether they're satanic or whether they have mental health issues, we don't want them to here. We don't want to be brought down. And that is such a terrible thing to feel, is that someone would rather reject you and send you away, someone that you love especially, uh, rather than have you bring down their vibe. Or I've even had, I've had ex-boyfriends tell me, uh, like, I just can't handle you right now. Like, I don't want to be surrounded by darkness. That sucks. That really sucks. And uh, that's all I'm going to say. It's devastating. It makes you yeah. it makes you question whether or not you're really worthy of love. Um, and no one should feel that way. I will acknowledge that, that these things are hard. Loving someone who is mentally ill or who has a disability, and if you don't, if you don't know how to interact with them, it can be hard. Especially the more you espouse ableist ideas, the harder it gets. You said the words value neurodiversity. Mm -hmm. And I think some people would be like, well, it's not about valuing it. It's just about like misunderstanding it or not thinking about it. And I'm like, well, if you value something, you put time into it. You put research into it. Yeah. You educate yourself about it. If you feel like you don't know how to love someone with a disability, whether it's, uh, you know, whatever kind of disability, put time into understanding it look up mm -hmm. like articles about it look up studies about it try to understand how they understand mm -hmm. emotions like there's research that you can do I think person to person disability is different and there's mm -hmm. different things that help different people the way you respond and understand emotion can also change due to how you were raised you know there's a lot of factors in it but you can try you can try to like yeah. put education and ask them ask them yeah I was gonna say you can ask them too um, I think uh, putting the emotional toll on someone to explain how to be loved really just sucks True. sometimes. Yeah. But, yeah. and I think people, but people hesitate to Google things. Like why, why is that such a hard thing for people to do to look up and try mm -hmm. to research things themselves? I think people jump to trying to force people to explain themselves before they try to put you know, research into it. But I think there's definitely value in both because people are so different from yeah. each other. So both both have to be done. And if you truly value disability, value neurodiversity, respect both of those things, uh, then you will do both. Yeah. And I think a large part of why this is hard for people um, is because they they don't have a set boundary between 
they're not very good with boundaries between themselves and others. And they think that if I love this person, I have to do everything in my power to be there for them. And I can't do that 100% of the time, A. And B, if I love this person, I need to help fix them, okay? Those are two two things that right. are not true. Like, you can love someone and not be present all the time. That's just a matter of, of differentiation and of setting correct boundaries and and valuing your own mental health. Everybody needs to value their own mental health, whether or not they have any diagnoses, right? If you don't have that boundary, then you're constantly going to be afraid of someone draining you. Does that make sense? Yeah. Because you have no defense. Because you don't have your own mental health stronghold. Mm-hmm. That's a great way to put that. Thank you. Also, if you follow Dr. Julie Hanks on Instagram, she is an LDS therapist based in Utah County, and she is amazing, and she has amazing workshops and resources and Instagram posts about setting boundaries with the people that you love and differentiation and that kind of thing. And stop trying to fix us. If you love someone, love them where they are, love them in all their flaws, in their quote-unquote darkness, in their quote-unquote craziness. I'm using all these words I don't like. And if you love them, that doesn't mean that you can't prioritize yourself, especially if you feel like you need some time to yourself to recover. Well, very wise words. I love that. Well, that concludes our content and opinions for this episode. We hope everybody follows us on Instagram and Facebook at Holy Human. We also created a Patreon, patreon.com slash holyhuman. Please support us. Thank you to our friend Holly, who submitted her story about losing speech and autism. We really, really appreciate your contribution and your willingness to share your story with the world. Also a big thank you to Matthew for our intro and outro music. We access the song from freesound.org and we thank you for creating it. Thank you for listening and for your support. Catch us next week with another episode of Holy Human following Come Follow Me and sharing other things about disability and faith.